0: I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Ngunnawan man from the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn Podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to Elders past and present.
1: Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. From the Center for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. Today, we're bringing you another episode of News Bytes, a series of live interviews showcasing the work of local journalists. This week's guest is Eric Jensen, the editor-in-chief of Schwartz Media. Eric's career has been multi-pronged. He began working as a music critic when he was only 15, After high school, he joined the Sydney Morning Herald and won a Walkie Award. Later, he became the founding editor of the Saturday Paper. And now he also oversees the monthly, as well as sports media podcasts like 7AM, the most popular news podcast in Australia. On top of this, he's released a poetry collection and written an award-winning biography of the artist Adam Cullen. The latter was adapted into the film Acute Misfortune, which is on Netflix. The News Bytes, he spoke to senior lecturer Louisa Lim about podcasting, editorial decisions, and crucial skills for storytellers. Louisa started by asking Eric how Schwartz Media's growing stable of podcasts fit in with its text offerings.
0: When we moved into audio properly about three or four years ago, we really consciously as a company decided that the monthly and the Saturday paper were these two big pillars of our journalism and we wanted to build an audio team that was at the same scale as what we do with our other titles and that we would treat audio as being key to what we do as a company. And a a big part of that was saying, you know, we're a media company, but we at the same time really strongly focus on ourselves as a storytelling company. And it was obvious to us that the next step we were going to take as storytellers was going to be into audio because so much of the journalism we were doing would be well served by audio and certainly 7am draws the majority of its journalism from our print titles and has been able to build a very strong audience taking that journalism and turning it into something that we can't do on the page or that we can't do in text and so this was sort of just a decision about four years ago to say audio is going to be a big part of what we're doing. More recently, we've brought in Sarah McVee as our head of audio, someone who's previously worked at Gimlet and elsewhere, and who is at the moment building a slate of other shows that will sit alongside 7am that will, I guess, broaden what we do in audio and also make sure that we're continuing to kind of expand how we approach audio storytelling. And so having a daily news show has taught us a lot about audio. And and certainly I used to edit at 7am when it first started. Doing that taught me a huge amount about story structure and made the rest of our journalism more rigorous because it suddenly became obvious that all the things that you can kind of hide from in text, you can't hide (laughs) from in audio. And so you know, I'm a great believer in the section break as a means by which to move past something you don't have an answer to, not so effective in narrative (laughs) audio, because the listener is like, why, you can't have, there's no section breaks, there's no no capacity to go, oh, there's a little gap that will move past. So I I think the lesson there has been audio has really broadened our audience, but it's also strengthened our storytelling, sort of flowing backwards into our text titles.
2: I was going to ask you about that question of audience. I mean, when it comes to numbers, how many people are listening to 7am? How many people are reading the monthly? And are they fundamentally different audiences?
0: It's very hard with the data that you get from Spotify and Apple and elsewhere to properly break down who is part of a cross audience. And I don't have the numbers to hand, but the 7am audience is certainly large and growing. The Saturday paper audience, I think there's about a million readers a month for the Saturday paper now. In terms of downloads for 7am, that number is probably about the same, probably a bit bigger on 7am. They're definitely different audiences because we see listeners of 7am taking up offers to subscribe to the monthly who were not previously subscribers and likewise across to the Saturday paper. There's no way they're the same audiences because a lot of the journalism is running across both those titles, but they still being read or listened to to completion. So either people really love Rick Morton's stories or they're different people <laughs> listening to them.
2: <laughs> One issue that seems to have raised a lot of interest amongst students is the issue of objectivity in journalism. And I was going to ask you how you approach that. You know, as editor-in-chief of yeah. a company that does both podcasts and a newspaper and a magazine, you know, is it important objectivity and neutrality or not anymore?
0: This is a question obviously all editors wrestle with. Most editors, I think, take a very old fashioned view to neutrality and either pretend that everything they do is very neutral, but then produce journalism that appears very biased, or pretend that somehow their journalists shouldn't have any feelings about the stories that they're doing. I have taken a position where I am less interested in objectivity and more interested in fairness. And I think, actually, it's really beneficial for a reporter to disclose their bias in a story. I think, particularly in audio storytelling, it's, it's really important and useful in building trust with the listener to be able to say, this story made me feel this way. And I reported it through that lens, but I still, you know... Checked everything and gave everyone a right of reply and made sure that all of those kind of basic tenets of journalism were ticked off. But I don't. I don't hold the view that a journalist shouldn't feel anything for the story that they're reporting because I think if we ask of people that level of numbness, we're not getting very good reporting from them. I, I, I don't think anyone can truly shake themselves of the, the ways in which a story makes them feel, and so it's much stronger to my mind, at least, to be upfront about any bias that you might have or any feelings you might have about a story and then say you know and we put these questions to these people and had these answers and you know here is our attempt at an objective truth but the objectivity doesn't necessarily need to be born of someone expressing no views about that story.
2: Mm. I saw actually today a story that said the New York Times is introducing these new bylines. I don't know if you've seen that, this, these extended bylines. So they don't just say who the journalist is, they say how the story was reported. You know, So-and-so spent three weeks going through databases or so-and-so went to a certain place to report this story and maybe information about the reporter's background that uh, might be relevant to where they stand on the story. I mean, do you think that's something that the Saturday paper might, and the monthly might do?
0: I think it's useful for the journalist as they tell you the story to explain how they've produced the story and to explain the work that's gone into the story. And so often in one of our features, it will be clear that there has been six weeks of interviews or the Saturday paper spoke to 20 sources or, you know, we we usually place those disclosures within a story. We don't place them within bylines because I think it's a little bit like the Heart Foundation tick. Putting kind of arbitrary measures about, we believe these three things tell you the story is good or bad, sort of invites you towards lower thresholds of disclosure, to my mind. It's the same way that I think one of the unintended consequences of defamation law in this country is that most newspaper editors look at stories through the lens of whether or not they're defamatory, not whether or not they should be reported or they're right or they're fair. And so as soon as you know that you you haven't identified anyone or that people that you have identified, you know, you could rely reasonably on a truth defence, there is a tendency to say, OK, so we should report that. And that's because defamation law creates for us a threshold of publication. I would prefer to think we should be looking in a more holistic way at a story and saying, "You know, do we have protections available to us under the Defamation Act, but also, is this fair? Should we be reporting it? Does this belong in the public record? Are we being sufficiently self-critical about what we're putting into the story and how we're telling the story? And so, f- to my mind at least, those smaller arbitrary things about saying we spent three weeks on the story or whatever actually just make you inclined to observe minimums as opposed to being engaged with whether or not the story should run at all.
2: I mean, talking about what stories you run you said you've literally just come from your you know monday is the day you decide the stories that are going to go in the saturday paper i mean talk us through that process how do those decisions get made
0: so with with those decisions and it's it's similar to what ends up on 7am or what ends up in the monthly it's about trying to find as much time as possible for a person to work on a story and then try to pick stories that you plan to run that week for instance with the knowledge that that story is going to unfold in a certain way and so this becomes a thing about the architecture of stories you know I don't want to be leotard about it but there are there are a certain number of different stories in journalism that follow a reasonably predictable course and you know if you're reading something about a story on a Monday and it's a crime story and you can see holes in the storytelling or you know that no one has yet been charged and there's likely to be a, there's, a, there's a various factors that you can put in in your mind look at the story and go okay by Saturday this is going to be a worthwhile story because there are all these things that I don't know on Monday or I know something is going to break in the story on the Wednesday because of the fact that you expect there to be a parliamentary hearing or you you know something that is going to happen and you can decide that on Monday at 10 a.m you have a reasonable chance of predicting a decent story by first thing Saturday morning and that is obviously not a foolproof thing but Having edited the Saturday paper for 10 years now, I've realised that actually lots of journalism moves in a fairly predictable direction. And and there are lots of stories where you even just get a feeling that there's more to that story, and you're not sure exactly what more there is to break in it, but you feel like if someone spent a week, they'd find something that we didn't yet know. It's usually... Most of the commissioning I do is commissioning about gaps in the news cycle. It's either about saying, no-one is really looking at this issue, and so I want something about this, or I've read this story and I'm not convinced that that's everything there is to the story or I've read this story and I think everyone is taking probably the wrong approach to telling the story and I'd like to tell it from a different perspective or I'd like to tell another side to the story and then there's obviously you know there's the stories in there that get broken by our reporters on the basis of contacts or you know their their own kind of expertise within a beat but the biggest aspect of what we do at Schwartz Media around story commissioning is basically looking and saying what's missing where are the holes and who's not being heard.
2: So I've got a lot of questions online about your career. Mm. How did you become a writer for the Sydney Morning Herald when you were 16?
0: Through the dumb luck of adolescence, I think, where you just assume when you're a teenager that you should do anything or can do anything. At the Herald, I I literally was doing work experience and took a portfolio of clippings to the music editor there and said, like, I think I should be a critic on your newspaper. Do you want to give me a record to review. And he was, uh, I think, surprised by uh, my forthrightness and (laughs) gave me a stack of albums. And I sent back reviews and then just started working that way.
2: You went to work there straight out of school, right?
0: Yeah, so I'd been a music critic there for a couple of years before I finished school. And then when I finished school, I became a cadet. This was, again, luck. There is no one you can talk to about their jobs in journalism that... Don't describe to you a combination of luck and privilege as the things that have given them their pathway into the industry, um, which is a problem with our industry, and certainly the luck there was that the then-editor at the Herald had some problem with university graduates. On reflection, it was because he was an anti-intellectual, but he wanted some school students to join the cadet program because that is how they used to train journalists, and his view was, you know, smart people were a problem for the industry, I think was his take. Uh, he didn't stay at the Herald for that long after that, but I was fortunate to be a school leaver cadet, which I think at the time was the first one they'd taken in like 20 years. And that program again was short-lived, largely because the editor's career was short-lived.
2: And I mean, we've done panels before and the descriptions that I've heard of your early career kind of sound like things that happened 50 years ago, you know, stakeouts in, in cars, in underground car parks and that kind of thing lots of drinking.
0: Yeah, cartoon journalism. I started full-time at the Sydney Morning Herald in 2007 and this was just before the first major rounds of redundancies that happened in newspapers in Australia and there was still a lot of time for, you know, stories that would take weeks to get up where you'd be on stakeouts for ages to try to find an opportunity to put a question to someone or to photograph someone doing something. Likewise, there was just a lot of time spent with really senior journalists sharing skills across to younger journalists and, you know, looking over drafts of stories and and showing you where there were holes in what you were doing and certainly knowing that that's not possible in newsrooms any longer just because they've contracted so much and because the demands on people in those newsrooms are so much greater than they were even 15 years ago makes me conscious that much as that editor who hired me had this view about universities not being a place to study journalism they absolutely, you know, they have to be because there's not that skills transfer that happens within newsrooms anymore.
2: I mean, it's a very popular question. What advice you have for young journalists who want a career in journalism? I mean, when you are employing people, what are you looking for?
0: I think something people get wrong about journalism is assuming that being able to break stories is the thing that is going to get you your job. No one can expect... A young journalist to have the contacts of someone who's been working in the industry for ages, and if you if you do happen to have a great skill for breaking stories, that's terrific. And if you have a skill for looking at holes in the news and and seeing ways that you could fill those holes, that's also terrific. For me, and and this probably speaks to working at a company like Schwartz, where storytelling is a big focus, of what we do. But I, I do think the only thing that you as a journalist have total power over is your capacity as a storyteller. You know, when I when I'm looking at young graduates coming in with stories. Even if they're pitching a story that I think is really good, the thing that I'm most interested in is their capacity to tell that story. I see a lot of people pitch to me who have not taken time to develop themselves as writers. And that, to my mind, is a skill that you can do in your own time. There's no reason not to write every day. There's no reason not to even make a kind of habit, if not out of keeping a diary, out of observation, of making sure that each day you find a new way to describe something you've seen or to you know to improve and hone your capacity to structure things you don't have to be interviewing people or breaking stories to do that work but if once you start interviewing people and breaking stories you haven't done that work you're going to find it much harder to actually do something worthwhile with the other expertise that you've built up in courses like this and it it's a real bugbear of mine I just don't understand how I get stories from people who have not taken the time to develop themselves as writers because that is a learnable skill and it's not just young reporters it's like I'll get a piece from someone who's a very respected journalist in their 50s and be shocked at the quality of the storytelling and part of that at that older generation there was an expectation that backbench subs would fix your stories and rewrite them for you. And we do that at Shorts. we do a lot of rewriting, but I also can't imagine wanting to send someone a story that's going to be rewritten, because you lose the thing that is you in the story, which is your capacity to tell it. That's a roundabout way of answering your question.
2: Uh, no, it's a good answer, and I would also add to that, read a lot, because yeah. you can't be a journalist unless you're reading what other people are doing or how to do journalism.
0: But also make sure that what you're reading isn't just journalism, because everyone is reading just journalism, so, if you're reading poetry or fiction or screenplays, reading things that help you develop your storytelling, you're going to be a more interesting writer than the people who think reading The Age in the New York Times is enough to be across what storytelling is. One of the things that really developed my storytelling was stand-up comedy, like I'm not doing it, but writing it for people and watching lots of it and seeing that that form of storytelling is actually terribly useful to being able to capture what will ultimately be an anecdote, but one that usually you're structuring in a way to try to keep a sense of, like, tension and release and payoff and all, all the things that actually are really helpful in a short feature are sometimes, I think, at least more explicit in a stand-up set than they are in, say, reading a novel or reading a, a book of extended non-fiction.
1: That was Schwartz Media's Editor-in-Chief, Eric Jensen, talking to Louisa Lim. The Yarn is from the Center for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. This episode was produced and edited by me. It was mastered by Elliot Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.